today on Teach, Preach, and Reach Around, we're going to be tackling something that's going to be very controversial, a freedom of religion. So stick around, you might just learn something. Official episode of Teach, Preach, and Reach Around. It's been a little bit of a of a break. Um, we we did spend some time with with our families and everything in the holidays. It was a little tougher for us to get in time together, but we've been able to kind of expand the ideas and what we're going to be looking to do. One major development is that you're going to be seeing a lot more product in the coming future in the form of mini podcasts, which is going to be either one of us, all of us, or a couple of us. It's really going to depend, but the idea is that we want to be able to put more podcasts out there. It will be you know, Davey deciding to do something that he finds interesting and talking about a topic. Davey, you actually were able to put one out uh, just today, actually. So yeah. why don't you go ahead? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was starting. Uh, what I did is that I kind of started talking about what happened over the weekend with uh, Meryl Streep and Donald Trump's response and kind of talking about the uh, well, basically what we think of as presidential behavior. Uh, and what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And, and of course, with the three of us being Clemson grads and Clemson fans, I did do a little bit of a plug for uh, the national championship. How, how about uh, the Tigers, man? How about it? That's right. It was, it was that's definitely right. special. So, um, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> if you're my friend on Facebook, my, uh, Tiara actually recorded my reaction to um, scoring the winning touchdown. And I got to say, it was if you watch it, it's it's incredibly raw. It's it was I did not realize I was on video, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting, and it's something that because I had Addy in my hands, it's something I always cherish. But you know, I, we could spend the entire podcast talking about how proud we are of those guys. We're all alum. We all love that school. It's more than just a football team to us. It is a uh, university that means so much to us. We don't want to spend too much time on it, but congratulations to the Clemson football team uh, and, and to the university, to Dabo Sweeney, to Deshaun Watson, Ben Bulware, and, and everyone else because that was special. It means so much to us as alum. It means so much to everyone involved that, that pulls for Clemson. And I think personally it's going to be great for college football going forward, you know, to see that the big, mighty Alabama can be beaten. On, on that note, Alabama, hell of a football team, deserves all the credit in the world for the program that they have. They are the standard. And, yeah, they are. <laughs> and I think that's, that's, a, that's a testament to uh, Nick Saban and, and, and everything. So, before, you know, because we will get off topic and we will bring that up time and time again, just to remind everybody that, you know, we are the champions for right now. But um, we did want to, um, you know, what we've been promising, what we've been talking about doing is a continuation of uh, conversation about the First Amendment. Last time we were finally together, a little about a month ago, uh, we put out a podcast uh, talking about the freedom of speech, uh, what that meant and everything. Uh, we wanted to kind of follow up and we wanted to talk about the um, freedom of religion. And that's the freedom of uh, from an establishment of, of religion, the government shall not do it so just like we did last time you know the first amendment 
Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That is the portion that we're going to be talking about that today. And I think, Bradley, the, the, the floor is yours at this point because I, we really we want to focus on how does the church view the, the First Amendment and what is the First Amendment? How does it abridge you? How does it impact your career and your day-to-day? It's an interesting dynamic, and I'll start off by saying first, it depends on who you ask. It depends on which tradition, which denomination you ask, what that relationship between church and state is. You know, as I understand the not only the establishment of the freedom of religion in the First Amendment, that the government shall not establish a religion, really how that's been interpreted and how it's been enforced through our history as a nation is that the, the federal government cannot tell you what you have to do in a religious sense. What we have seen through the, the centuries is that the government can and, and sometimes does tell people what they cannot do as part of a, a quote-unquote religious expression. One of the things that comes to mind, and, and Stephen, you might have you know, had some conversations with people out west, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints in its early days ran up against the, the federal government a couple of times in trying to hash out what it meant to be uh, a newly established religion and what that meant for the freedom of expression. And, and one of the things specifically that was turned down, and, and it was a, really an interesting dynamic, and we don't have enough time or space to go into the, the details of all of it, but the, the original practice of polygamy in the Church of Latter-day Saints that obviously for, for the United States was a no-no. And so we, we as a nation had to kind of hash out what does it mean to have freedom of religion and does this mean you can just do anything? Because, of course, you know, we all know the slippery slope argument. Well, if my religion tells me that I can sacrifice and cannibalize babies, you can't tell me I can't. Well, that goes against uh, certain other laws of the land. And, and so I think that's how I understand it. It's the government can't tell you what you have to do, but they can tell you certain things you're not allowed to do. Because, again, it's that balance, that check and balance of your freedom cannot infringe someone else's. And I think for, for the, the Christian church in the United States, it's been such a unique uh, history and such a unique experience in the United States um, that that line of influence between church and state is oftentimes blurred. And so for many people, their, their own viewpoint is, well, the church and the state when it comes to Christianity is the same thing and it always has been. For others, that means it's a limitation of their own expressions of faith. And I know many Christians who firmly believe, no, the United States is not and never has been an established Christian nation. And if you just look at our history, you'd be able to see that. So it is, it's a controversial issue. One of the the most influential things that I've come across was something I was uh, required to read in seminary for a course on American Christianity, uh, and it's by John Fee. It's called "Was America Founded as a Christian Nation?" Uh, and the subtitle, "A Historical Introduction." And so, what John Fee tries to do in that text is to take a historical, looking at historical documents and historical accounts, and say whether it should or shouldn't be. Is it? You know, trying not to bring the personal beliefs of well, it should be. But to just ask the, uh, the obvious question, 
is it? Was it? Uh, were we founded to be such? And, and some of the interesting things is, well, where do you look to try and figure that out? Do you look at firsthand documents uh, from people like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, or John Adams, historical writers of whom we have a lot of different documents we could go over? Do you look at the actual binding documents of our nation, the, the Declaration of Independence, the early drafts of the Constitution? Where do you look to try and establish that? And it's something that's interesting, and I can't remember the exact date of when this was allegedly, not allegedly, but when it was uh, brought up by Mike Huckabee, and I think it might have been in the 08 election cycle, but something that John Fia points out in his research is that Mike Huckabee claimed most of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence were clergy persons. And in John Fia's research, he says, you know, in fact, there was only one member of the clergy who signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, and it was John Witherspoon, who was the College of New Jersey president at the time. And so looking at the, the Declaration of Independence, looking at the Constitution, it's, it's hard to deny there is a lot of what I'll call sacred language, a lot of divine language that's been used. God, a, a divine presence being whatever you might want to call it, is brought up time and time again, not only in those two documents, but throughout our history. There, there's always been this belief in God's providence and special blessing for this nation. In a lot of ways, it was seen through the manifest destination and through the, the westward expansion. Uh, it was seen in the establishment of the colonies. It was seen in the the unlikely underdog victory of the Revolutionary War and the providence to make it through the War of 1812 uh, and to be somewhat reconciled as a nation after the war, the Civil War. And so it's, it's an interesting dynamic that there, there is undoubtedly this belief that the United States has been specially touched, specially blessed by God. Um, but the interesting thing about that is we, of course, know that victors write the history. And so, so, so what we see is, whether it's extremely limited or only slightly limited, we, we always see a limited viewpoint of history and what actually happens because it's always written from one prevailing side. You know, I, I think one of the most succinct things I can say is something that John Fia brings up, uh, and Stephen, you might have actually studied this, uh, the ruling on the Church of Holy Trinity versus the United States in 1892, uh, Supreme Court Justice Brewer ruled, and, and this is a, a quote, but it's paraphrased from a lot of different paragraphs of his ruling, it says the U.S. Uh, was not a Christian nation in the sense that Christianity is the established religion or that the people are in any manner compelled to support it. Neither was the U.S. Christian in the sense that all its citizens are either in fact or in name Christians, nor is the U.S. Christian in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding office or otherwise engaging in public service. Yet, America was a Christian nation in a historical sense. While the U.S. should never be perceived as a Christian nation in any formal or official sense, it is certainly a Christian nation in terms of culture and history. And I think that that simultaneously describes and, and kind of sums up the uniqueness of America being at once a religiously free nation and also a Christian nation, because it depends on how you define uh, Christianity, and it depends on how you define that nation. That for Justice Brewer, it is, this is the prevailing narrative, and after a while, 
that becomes reality for a lot of people, whether it should or it shouldn't be. And again, John Fia's main point isn't to to establish whether America should or shouldn't be a Christian nation, but is it, in fact, was it founded? And two of the things that he goes back to, which are two of the things that I often bring into conversations with people, uh, are what he calls the orthodoxy test, uh, which is, you know, you examine the U.S.'s founding documents, you look at the religious beliefs of the founders to see if they measure up to Orthodox Christianity, you know, those standards that are set forth in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, to a certain extent even just in the Lord's Prayer and and basic evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, whatever it might be, but does it fit that mold? The other is the orthopraxy test, which is, are the actions, the decisions, the guidance of the founders, does that mirror, is it consistent with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ? about whom and for whom Christianity is named and, and is following. And in both of those cases, you find people on both sides of the fence arguing vehemently for their own viewpoint. I think it's a, a bit short-sighted to say that the Founding Fathers were, in fact, Christian, uh, as you would define that in an orthodoxy-type way or even an orthopraxy-type way. Um, you know, we've, we've all been to Monticello. We've seen Thomas Jefferson's uh, estate, and we've read through... Some of the bizarre things that he did uh, with Scripture and to Scripture. And, and, and so, to a certain extent, can you profess to be Christian? Can you lead in a Christian way if you undercut, if you take away basic Christian tenets of faith? And, and, and from a clergy perspective and even from just a, a, being a personal Christian, I don't think you can do that, but I don't think that stops people from trying. We, as a nation, kind of have this nostalgic view of our past in a larger sense that America's always the good guy. That's not to say we believe we have always been perfect, but that of the options in the world, we've always been the better choice. <laughs> and I th- yeah, and I definitely think that, you know, if, if you know, talking about the manifest destiny, talking about this idea that, you know, we as America are different. Um, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, we can really talk about, you know, how that affects, but where, where I want to take it now is I want to say, you know, okay, so we have this idea and there's a lot of information about, are we a Christian nation? Um, regardless of the, you know, the fact that, um, you know, it says establishment clause part says that there will be no established religion. The idea behind that is, you know, you look at the establishment, we are, we do not say that we are Christian in nature. For example, you look at England, you know, and David, you can speak a little bit to this, but, you know, if you were from England, you were assumed to be a particular type of religion. You know, if you were in Rome, you were, to, you know, you were going to be Roman Catholic. You know, there was a large establishment that the church had a very big part in the government of a particular country. Um, you know, and in certain areas still does. What you've seen in America is this idea that we're trying to move away from this idea of unestablished religion in the sense that a religious entity dictates law. You know, uh, mom always likes to say you can't legislate morality. But, uh, you know, what what I want to kind of look at now is, you know, Bradley, do you, as a leader of a church, 
do you think that the church has a role in government? And should it have a role in government? And I'm, when, I, when I say church, I mean big church and specifically Christian church in this sense. So do you think that the Christian church as a whole has a role to play in government? And if so, what um, role is that? Lots of facets to that. Uh, first thing I will say, and it's echoing something that uh, President Barack Obama said, and I cannot remember when. Some listener will probably goad me on this later on. But he said at a certain point, something to the extent of our beliefs necessarily will inform how we interact in society and will guide our decision making as elected officials, as people in the public. Because the basic understanding is if you truly believe something, it becomes a guiding truth. And if if something is a core value, if it is a guiding light in your life, of course you're going to act on that no matter whatever sphere of influence you have. That being said, I think that the the responsibility of every American, of every citizen, of every person who desires to be a an effective and, and participating part of this nation uh, is responsible for sharing their beliefs and living according to those beliefs. I think the, the interesting thing that we see as a dynamic is that we are a melting pot in a cultural sense, in an you know, ethnic sense, in, in every sense imaginable. And so we have differing beliefs and not just uh, you know, someone who is Buddhist or someone who is Hindu or someone who is uh, Muslim or someone who is Christian or you know, the many facets of all of those religions and philosophies. But there are differing opinions in economics. There are differing opinions and beliefs in uh, what is morally right. And, and I think what we often see as the, the United States has tried to hash out this dilemma is where can we all agree? Uh, what is definitively or definitively to a certain extent objection, uh, objectively true, right, righteous, just, whatever word you want to ascribe to it, for the majority at least. I think we have a history of trying to not necessarily legislate morality. Uh, I think we've gone down that path at certain points. I think ultimately what the the U.S. has tried to do is be a moral compass. Uh, And I think we we kind of imagine ourselves as a, a moral compass for the nations And I think that's why for so many people, when they see the moral compass pointing in a different direction than how they believe it should be pointing, we we respond very vehemently to that. Um, And I think that's a normal reaction. And I think so, too. And I I also think that, you know, if you look at different denominations, different denominations differ in a lot of in a lot of unmeaningful ways, in my opinion. Um, You know, if you're looking at the. You know, Presbyterian Church versus the Baptist Church. You know, you you know, if you're from the South, you know these two entities don't mix. You know, it's not pleasant company. You know, they're all Christian. They're all under that thing. They're under that umbrella, but you don't get the sense that they agree on a whole lot. However, when you break Christian core beliefs down, you see commonality, common goals, common beliefs that on which everything is built upon. 
you know, and I think that what you're talking about and, and the way that I took that was to say the church's role is less on the government itself and more on the individuals that are acting in the government. If the church's role is to influence a person to, in a general sense, be a better person, then the church's role in terms of government is to make the people in the government that make up the government better people. If that is the case, and they are taking those beliefs into their government, government, governing, then you see positive influences on that person, not necessarily the church wielding influence on on the uh, the government entity. I think that the same can be true that when you look at a Buddhist, if you look at a, uh, a Hindu, if you look at any other religious entity, or an agnostic or an atheist that just happens to believe in a moral uh, compass or a moral center, then what you see is that having positive beliefs, having a positive influence on people, and, and, and trying to do better for your fellow man, you see positivity and, and that goal. Where it becomes problematic is where you, you get this idea that we're going to differ on these minute details, really, and you kind of go on beyond that. So now, Davey, I want to I want to talk to you a little bit, and I want to say, okay, where the schools are concerned, there is a very big backlash, if you will, about having religion in public schools specifically. We all went to we went to a private Christian school in uh, in a small town. South Carolina. So we went to Bible classes, you know, religion was very much a part of our education. Um, However, in public school, it is really frowned upon because I I think that the fear is that you are infringing upon other people's right to practice a religion that may differ from the majority. You know, if you live in the South, the majority of people go to a Christian church, you know, whether it be Baptist, Methodist, uh, non-denominational, whatever. You look at other people that may not go to those types of churches, they are seen as outcasts. So forcing them to participate in a prayer, forcing them to participate in a Bible study or something along those lines, it infringes on their right to not do so. So, I mean, David, do you see this? Oh, yes. <clears throat> I, I see this a lot. Um, now, granted, I teach in a southern area, uh, so I teach uh, kids that are much more, I guess, used to Christianity. But because I also teach in a urban setting, I also have students that are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, as well as Buddhist, just it, all in the same class. And one of the things that many people disagree with isn't the fact that they think that religion should be, shouldn't be taught in the school. It's just that they think that it should be their religion that should be taught in the school. And as such, that is where the the forces come together and cause problems because 
if you have a, and I'll tell you a story, I've had two incidents where I have been told by the kids, that's wrong, I'm not learning that. Now, to a certain extent, I am kind of bound by what the state is telling me I have to teach and I have to teach certain standards. But I'm also, because this is such a personal subject, I can get into a lot of trouble if I keep forcing, quote-unquote, forcing this topic onto them. Now, because I am a social studies teacher, I teach the religion from a historical background because whatever religion you are, you cannot argue with the fact that these religions had an impact on the various regions that we are talking about. So if we are talking about Mesopotamia, and we're going to be talking about Judaism. If we are, going, if we are talking about China, we are going to be talking about Buddhism. And if we're talking about India, we're going to be talking about both Buddhism and Hinduism because that is integral to understanding this culture. But, and again, these two uh, students told me that they were not going to learn those facts because it was counter to what they believed. And I... And I think you... Yeah, and I think you see that. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about with the freedom of speech. You know, everyone's fine spouting off freedom of speech so long as you agree with what's being spoken. Exactly. The second you agree, don't agree with what's being spoken, now all of a sudden you want to say, well, shut up. Yeah. You know, it went from a religious standpoint... Everyone seems to be okay with this idea that, hey, here's a time where people can come in and pray and have their time to talk to their God, and it goes on fine until somebody comes in and they don't like it. So I, I want to, you know, when I was when we were in law school, we talked a lot about different religious aspects and everything like that. And it, it's, it's really a fine line when you're talking about establishment of a religion or an endorsement of a particular religion. When a social studies teacher is teaching the historic, the historical aspect of a religion, that is not a problem in my eyes and and should not be a problem in a number of other people's eyes because you're not advocating for one religion over another. Now, if you spent three weeks talking about Christianity and three minutes talking about Judaism and Buddhism, then I could say, you know what, you're, you're, you're treating that religion differently because that is your religion. But Obviously, what you're doing is you are focusing on different religions and their impact on society, you know, and, and kind of going from there. But when a, well, let's just, you know, let's just go straight to Clemson. Uh, Clemson is a public university. And a couple of years ago, um, there was some backlash on uh, Dabo Sweeney and the team because people were saying he was preaching and he was requiring his players to partake in different religious aspects. And I believe that one of the players was in fact baptized as part of 
I don't remember if it was part of a practice or part of a meeting or something like that. And when pushed, all the players came out and said, we all know what Dabo believes. Dabo is a Christian. We all know that. You could literally watch Dabo's any interview he's ever been in, and he is a great man of faith. A lot of the players are also like that. You know, you saw in Deshaun Watson last night in his interview, you know, giving glory to God and talking about how this was God's plan and everything. You may have a different idea about that, but the idea that Dabo is somehow forcing his players that don't agree with that to somehow participate this in order to play, that was that was absolutely false. But there's obviously this backlash because people are saying you have a public employee for a public university basically endorsing a particular thing. Not really. I mean, let's say that he was, you know, his personal beliefs said that, you know what, you should wake up every single morning, you should have a bowl of oatmeal, you should have a banana, and then at lunch you should, you know, eat a chicken salad sandwich, and then at dinner time you should have a steak and potatoes for dinner. If that was his belief, and he and he said to all of his players, you do this and you're going to succeed because this is what has made me good, and a number of other players started doing that, is that is that espousing a religion? Is that is that endorsing a particular religion? Or is that just a lifestyle that has worked for him and he is doing that? You know, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate question is, you know, is there a fine line between endorsing by living by example, so to speak, and doing what Bradley was talking about, where he says, you know, these politicians that are in in the government are supposed to have this moral compass, moral moral center about them, where they believe particular things. So, where where is that line drawn, where the church or a particular religion has crossed over and gone too far? Well, you know, and I think go one, ahead. one of the things that and and Bradley kind of touched on a lot of these topics, and and I was just letting him go as opposed to being rude and an ass and just say, hey, wait, I got something to add here. But I do want to touch on a couple of subjects as we are are developing this. That earlier we had talked about, uh, and Bradley, I'm forgive me, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but looking at the uh, founding fathers like looking at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and looking at what the the founding fathers actually believed and what they wrote into the or the founding uh, documents. One of the things that many people kind of skip over is that uh, there was a, uh, a treaty that was signed in 1796. So this was during John Adams' Uh, presidency. It was uh, in Treaty his first term. Yes, the Treaty of Tripoli. Uh, and in it, it, there is an Article 11, and it states that as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or twin- tranquility of the the Muslims, which are the Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of of hostility against the Mohammedan nation, those believing in Muhammad, is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religions, religious option, uh, excuse me, if I could read it, it'd be dangerous, from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. 
basically, I mean, this is 1796, so almost all of the founding fathers that were uh, major players are still present. I think even George Washington had just left his uh, presidency not a year before, so I mean, he's still looming in everyone's mind, and here we have this treaty, treaty that is being ratified by unanimously by the Senate. <laughs> exactly. Filled with people who were also involved majorly with the creation of the Constitution and to a certain extent the Declaration of Independence. So these same men are saying, hey, listen, we didn't found this nation on as a Christian nation. Now, that doesn't mean and one of the things that uh, sticks out in my mind is that there, uh, and I can't remember the exact quote, and I look, was trying to find it earlier and I couldn't, um, but there is a, uh, as everyone knows, the, the wall of separation between church and state coined by Thomas Jefferson approximately in this time period but one of the things that someone had responded is that there is a one-way wall that separates the church and state that they understood, the founding fathers understood that the moral compass that each person has is going to influence their politics. They understood that. What they did not want to do was to have the state, the government, influencing the religion so that it's kind of a a quote-unquote self-fulfilling prophecy where we know that the religion is going to influence the government, but if the government is also influencing the religion, things can go go wonky and get go haywire. Okay, so there's, there's two things. And the last thing that I wanted to kind of touch on was something that Stephen mentioned earlier about the idea that this the the church and the state prior to the United States creation were the same. They were if you believed in the church, you were uh, or excuse me, if you were a participant and a citizen of a state, you were this religion. Uh, if you were a Frenchman, you were Catholic, period. If you were an Englishman, you were Anglican. If you were a Italian, you were Roman Catholic. And this idea became so entrenched that there were many wars fought when people decided that they didn't want to be that religion, but they still wanted to be the citizen. Uh, I mean, you have the the Thirty Years' War, countless beheadings and stuff that, uh, I mean, Henry VIII did with bloody or with Mary the First, and then finally Elizabeth the First, and then even further on with uh, James and James the First and Charles and all them, although less so with them, but then even with in France, in France, this idea of if you were a Frenchman, you were going to be Catholic, that really uh, went against the grain 
or excuse me, when people started to say, no, let's look at this, this Calvinistic idea or let's look at this Lutheran idea, they became these, uh, this sect called the Huguenots and this, these people started looking for ways that they could be a citizen of a country but they did not ha necessarily have to believe the exact same thing as everyone else. Um, and that's why we have a lot of people coming to America. I mean, people, the Puritans uh, fled England to come to North America or to the northern states, Massachusetts in particular. You have the Huguenots fleeing to South Carolina. You have the, the Baptists as well. Then you have the basically any Anglicans that were dissenting, so to speak, would come to, to the South. And then you have the Jewish people that were fleeing Germany. And you have the, or, and also Spain. You also have the, the Roman Catholics that were living in England. They decided to come to Maryland and then the Quakers. So they wanted, the United States, the Founding Fathers, wanted a way that you could separate these two so that you could be a citizen of the United States but not necessarily have to believe what everyone else did. And, and that's where this separation of church and state kind of got its idea. And then the last thing I wanted to include was about Thomas Jefferson and many of these founding fathers would be classified, would be specifically classified not as quote-unquote Christian in the strictest sense of the word, but they were deist. And, and just to let you know what deist is, deists are people that believe in a supreme being, but they do not attribute any type of supernatural occurrences to God. That they basically the easiest uh, idea is that this this God would create the universe like a a clock, and he would wind up the clock and then set the clock aside and not touch it again. He would just let the clock run, and that's what many Buddhists believe actually happened during the 17th and 18th century. So, anyways, well, and, and for I was just going to cut it for. Most of the founding fathers, their their guiding principles were based more in the Enlightenment that was coming out of Europe. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin spent so much time in Europe studying the philosophies of the Enlightenment, people like John Locke, and, and reading so many philosophical texts that their beliefs, their, whether it was an espoused, official, recognized, established religion or not, their belief system was really a philosophical one. This, that's not to take anything away from it, but to say it was all based in this idea of the enlightenment and of reason. And, and one of the most foundational principles of the enlightenment is there is no need for a teacher. There's no need for a higher power. There's no need for special revelation. You can arrive at the truth independently, which so many people since then have, have kind of debunked at every level, but especially for, for the Christian faith, something that isn't talked about a lot, but something that we've actually just gone through celebrating in the church calendar is the Epiphany. Uh, and the Epiphany is, of course, 
the celebration of the journey of the Magi from the east to visit Jesus guided by the star. But of course, the tradition of the Epiphany is a celebration of God's revelation to creation, that God speaks, reveals, shines truth that we otherwise would have been blind and uh, unaware of. And so for the founding fathers, it was reason. For Christianity, it is God speaking, communicating, you know, however that that epiphany, that revelation takes place, and it does take place in many ways. And those two are very opposing ideologies. Where Where is the foundation of the source of truth? Is it in reason or is it in revelation? And, and I think that the two can and often do go together, but the, the first question is where does truth originate? Uh, and for the founding fathers, like you said, Davey, deism is something that, I mean, even wrote the Summa Theologica, and I cannot think of his name right now. Oh, bad pastor, bad seminary student. Uh, it will come to me after this podcast is done. But, I mean, he, even he established any rational, reasonable person can independently arrive at the necessity for there being a divine person. Thank you. Thomas Aquinas. Rebecca's helping me. Um, but yeah, Thomas Aquinas believed, and, and I think rightly so, that any rational, reasonable person, if they asked quisitive things and, and searched and reflected long enough and hard enough, they would arrive at the necessity of a divine being, some thing that created, established, and, and to a certain extent sustains the universe. But that's all reason can get us. And so you end up with something like deism, where there is the, the divine watchmaker who has set the universe in order. We don't know why. We don't really know when, but we know that. And, and I think for many of the founding fathers, that was about as deep as their Christian faith went, that it was okay to believe a God created the universe. But like Thomas Jefferson did, anything that doesn't sync up with reason, something that any rational person could agree with, well, that's just superstitious nonsense, and you can throw it right out. And that's, of course, my paraphrase. I, I doubt he ever said those words. He was a little bit more eloquent than that, but... There you have it. Well, unless if he was drinking a little bit and you know, and having an affair with one of his slaves, you know, then he might have said something. No, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I'm sorry. He was not having an affair with Sally Hemings. His wife had been dead for many years. Now, I will grant you that he probably did take advantage of the slave-master relationship. But damn it! I, I feel like that's the only relationship there is 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 taken advantage of. But that's a separate well, conversation. That's neither here nor there. But he did not have an affair with his slave. He was in a monogamous with the, relationship right, with right, Sally. Right, Hemings. Right, that he that he probably kept a lot of hidden. Are we really trying to sit here and defend Thomas Jefferson? Brilliant, but really quirky and strange. Uh, that, that's and that's putting it mildly. It mildly. Yeah. Yeah, he put a couple ports in him or something like that, and you know who knows what he's gonna say. So, um, I, I you know, we're kind of coming to you know I, I want to hit a couple of more points before we wrap this up. You know, Bradley, you you mentioned the the government's involvement with with the LDS Church and polygamy specifically, and I, and I want to kind of talk about that, and I, I want to push us a little bit because I, I really want us to talk about this and, and and discuss both sides. So, Bradley, you're the minister. I I can imagine that you have strong feelings over or about the idea of polygamy from a personal standpoint. So, keeping that in mind, do you think 
because for people that don't know, Utah was only admitted into the Union because they... They got rid of polygamy. Exactly. You know, so there's this idea that the federal government mandated a change on people's religious beliefs. So, Bradley, looking at that, did the federal government have a right to do that? You know, you, I imagine you probably don't agree with the practice of polygamy, but, you know, looking at what the federal government did, did the government have that right? Did they overstep the bounds of the First Amendment by doing so? Um, Let me start with a shameless personal plug uh, and a pet peeve of mine. One of my biggest pet peeves in conversations, and and it's especially prevalent recently because of the, the debates that are going, you know, across the country, around the world, but especially in the United Methodist Church now, Uh, the debate on human sexuality and specifically homosexuality, non-socially established genders, especially in the southeast of the U.S. It's a very touchy subject. But one of my biggest pet peeves is when people stand on the quote-unquote principle of biblical marriage. I don't have a problem if somebody says, you know, the traditional understanding of marriage, because I think that's, it's splitting hairs to say, well, no, this isn't traditional to be, you know, heteronormative. But when you say biblical and you look at some of the marriages and and some of the relationships, some of the families that are lifted up from Scripture who are patriarchs of not only the Christian faith but of the Hebrew faith as well, paragons of virtue in every other aspect, save for their personal lives and marriages. I mean, how many biblical patriarchs were polygamists? King Solomon, the wisest person for for Christians and and for many Jewish people as well. well King and also, Solomon was the and also is uh, Islamic people, right? Muslims. One, I mean, one of the wisest persons to ever live, one of the most prolific wisdom writers in history. I, I think there's a new category for Solomon. He's not just a polygamist. Uh, I mean, when you when you were talking about <laughs> he's a hyper polygamist. <laughs> uh, you, you're you are really talking about having a harem. You are talking about having your own small principality of sexual partners and relational partners. Well, I mean, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, you're talking about a thousand different women that he was in one way or another responsible for or, or was associated with. I mean, you're talking about, yeah, I mean, like David said, a hyper-polygamist. So, so again, personal pet peeve when people elevate a biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman as the only biblical definition of marriage. And and I get what's meant by that, but it's still just a pet peeve. But to get to your actual question, I think that in that case, obviously not having lived through it personally, my my insight onto it would say, I don't think that the federal government overstepped the bounds of the First Amendment. Maybe simply because the this what became the state of Utah and the legislation and the people of the, the Church of Latter day Saints, you know, I don't want to say gave in, but they consented to that change whether it was begrudgingly or what. I think that the ultimate desire for the Church of Latter-day Saints at the time, for what would be the state of Utah, and for the federal government was, we want you to be a state, and in many cases, because of manifest destiny, because of economic resources, because of landmass, because of ego, because of power, because of prestige, those were the driving factors. And I don't think that... The Church of Latter-day Saints, and, and if, I, if I remember my studies correctly, Brigham Young was, was still the leader of the Church of Latter-day Saints at that point when Utah was entering statehood. I, I could be wrong about that. He was, I believe. Uh, I don't think that he compromised 
their faith, their beliefs to become citizens of the U.S. and to have Utah become an officially recognized state. I think that what you ultimately have is a, a surface issue of religious freedom that the vast majority, the, the base of the iceberg was otherwise motivated. And before, so I think before that you before you I just looked this up. No, he was not. He died approximately twenty years beforehand. Okay. Okay. So but, so it would have been his successor. And there again, the the reasons for polygamy in in the Christian and Hebrew scriptures, you know, you have the mandate after the the expulsion from Eden go into the world, uh, be fruitful and multiply. That if you are responsible for, you know, for the for the creation mythos and for any conservative or fundamentalist Christians hearing that, no, I did not say myth, but the mythos, the story of creation that we adhere to. If you believe that two people are responsible for populating the entire world, polygamy kind of becomes a necessity at a certain point. Traditional values aside, it's a necessity of procreation and of filling the earth. I think for the Church of Latter-day Saints, and, and I would invite someone who who is a follower of that, who has studied more than I have, to weigh in if they listen to this. I think to a certain extent it was at least believed to be a necessity for the survival of the religion, that they were being persecuted. You know, I mean, the Church of Latter-day Saints began in the, in the Southeast, in the Midwest, around about Missouri, I believe, and was driven from one place to another because of persecution. And, and many of the reasons because, well, your beliefs are different and strange and funny and we don't like them and we don't agree with them, so we're going to persecute you. Which is something Christians have, have uh, not only a knack for, but in certain cases an affinity for. I think what we see in, in the specific case of Christianity, since the 4th century with Constantine, Christianity has enjoyed a special place of privilege, not just being protected, because I think when, when Constantine established Christianity as, as the religion for his empire, that it was not just a means of protection, but it was an endorsement. And Christianity, to one degree or another, has enjoyed that position and privilege since that time. And what we see in the United States is so many other nations who have been predominantly guided by Christianity, many countries in Europe, with the Reformation, with so many wars started by religious differences, with so many immigrants and expulsions and, and just terrible things that have happened in the name of Christianity specifically, what we've seen is there's been a shift of, okay, we can't fall into the same mistakes as we have in the past. But the United States, in a lot of ways, is kind of the last bastion of that privilege for the Christian church. That for many Americans, Christianity is not their religion. It would not be for a plethora of reasons. But there is still at least this idea that Christianity is not only protected, but has a, a, a level of influence that is above and beyond others. And, and that, I think, is what spurns the debate on about the freedom of religion is freedom requires equity, and equity is a difficult thing when you have more than one person in the room. But what we've seen is what I think is a, a shift towards equity in some ways, and that the people, we, we always see it in history, the people who are in power, the people who have control and have privilege and have status, very rarely relinquish it without a very strong fight. So, you know, I, I think that's what we're seeing. And, and it's a, 
you know, this is just a microcosm of that long-term debate. But I think that's been the general shift over really the history of our nation. And I definitely, I mean, I think you made a lot of valid points and I appreciate you taking the position that you know, the government didn't overstep the bounds. I absolutely disagree. I, I look at, you know, the federal government and their involvement and, you know, I, I want, I want the federal governments to recognize the fact that they are founded upon this idea of religious freedom, which means not only that you don't have an established religion, but that you promote or at least allow for other people to take up different religions, okay? So there's a couple of issues that come into that. Number one, can anybody just come up with religion and say X, Y, Z are their beliefs and therefore they're, they're immune to government interference? Right. No. Because of taxes. I'm not advocating. <laughs> exactly. I'm not advocating for that, okay? You brought up an excellent point earlier saying that, you know, the government absolutely is allowed to have laws that protect against human sacrifices, for example. And that's always the extreme that people use when talking about religious freedom and everything, saying, well, you can do this because you can't, you know, of course you don't want to have human sacrifices. You don't want to have that slippery slope. You know, and, and I, I remember making this argument a long time ago in, in at Clemson when we were talking in a legal studies class, and the question was posed about gay marriage. And I remember a student stood up and was like, you know, I absolutely think that gay marriage is wrong because it's a slippery slope and you don't know whether if you allow gay marriage, then there are people going to be marrying dogs, chickens, whatever. No. Right. And to be fair, that, that slippery there, slope <laughs> argument is completely facile, uh, you know, to, to say sex or a relationship or, you know, monogamy or whatever you, you might enjoy with a person of the same species, it would have been a, still a bad argument, but it would have been at least a closer slippery slope argument to say, what's next, uh, interracial marriages, which there again, we've had that problem too. Yes, we have. I mean, it, it was, um, I want to say that it was actually, oh, when was Loving v. Virginia? Um <sighs> I want to say, David, can you look I that want to up say it was for 60, the, there's a brand new movie coming out, uh, but I w- want yes, to say it was is. like 1964, 60, uh, 67, 1967. 67. Okay, so until 1967, it was illegal in this, in this country for a white man to marry a black woman or interracial marriage or anything like that. It was illegal, punishable as a crime. Until 2003, it was illegal to more or less be gay. Now, they had different rules or laws or whatever, and they were sodomy laws typically. But you were, I mean, you were being very, very not progressive whatsoever when you are talking about, you, you were talking about a lot of non-progressive ways to think about things when you're talking about it was basically illegal to be gay until 2003. With, uh, with Lawrence v. Texas. So getting back to the polygamy issue, you know, you look at the federal government, more or less, because this wasn't something that the Mormon church wanted to give up voluntarily. They fought it. They fought it from a religious aspect, and they said that, you know, you as a federal government can't tell us what to believe. There is a big distinction between sacrificing babies oh, yeah. definitely, as part definitely. of your religious belief versus having a relationship, a marital relationship with a variety of different people, specifically women. On the flip side, 
you can absolutely say that the government has a right to protect the sanctity of core beliefs and everything, and, and they can try to say that. However, when you look at this, why did the federal government mandate, essentially, that the Mormon church give up the role or the practice of polygamy? It wasn't because they were really worried about what these men were doing with all these wives and everything like that. It was very much one of two things and probably a combination of, of both. Number one, it was the idea that they didn't agree with it. It is why the Mormon church was uh, persecuted. It is why, you know, they were driven out west. It was very much an idea that we disagree with your quote-unquote weird beliefs. They were driven out west because of that. The other issue is taxes, money, finances. They didn't want to give these benefits to one man having seven, eight wives and be able to do that. But I don't agree with the idea that the federal government has the right to tell a established religion that they can't do something along these lines. We're not talking about human sacrifices. Right. Well, I think that then we invites are talk- the conversation of what defines established uh, or tradition or, or something like that. And I, I think that... If you enter into that as a, they are recognized as an official religion, that's one thing. But I mean, you could go back to one of the Romans' biggest issues with Christianity was that it was seen as a new sect, and anything new was dangerous. If it it wasn't at least centuries old, it wasn't good. And of course, the Romans are great at stealing other people's old stuff and claiming it as their own, but... They did have a very successful empire. So I agree with what you're saying that, you know, it's not the place of the federal government to to infringe upon the expression of an established religion. But the, but question, the question then becomes, is, what do you have to do? Right, well, I think that what we've seen in especially laws and mores dealing with human relationships, specifically human sexual relationships, the United States has been sluggish at best. Not to say that's necessarily a bad thing in all cases, but I think what we've seen and what we've highlighted in this discussion is where it comes to a head, we're still very sluggish. Yeah, I think that there is definitely a balance that needs to be had. I think first and foremost, what we need to be practicing in this country is a toleration of of other people's beliefs and, and recognizing the fact that, you know what, beliefs are very personal. And a belief may be something that says, I believe that I have the right to marry whomever I wish to marry and as many people as I wish to marry. And that is a foundation of my belief. And then you have some people that say that their belief is simply that college football is king and that, you know, that's what's going on. You know, there, there's, it is a fine line. And I do think that the government has a role in helping to establish that people can't just say, well, I have a religion, and it says this and everything. So I think that there's definitely needs to be a a, a, a tolerance for, for different beliefs and different established religions. I do think that once a religion is quote-unquote established, I don't know the answer to how that, that happens. But I definitely think that, that you know once that religion is established, provided you are not hurting people or or violating some other law that makes sense then the religion shouldn't be used as a way to escape the federal government interference but the federal government also can't be used to interfere with people's personal beliefs when you look specifically 
at the polygamy aspect of the LDS Church. That is a that was a fundamental practice and belief of the Mormon Church. Whether you agree with it or not is immaterial. The fact is, is that the government has stepped in because it didn't agree with it. The vast majority of people didn't agree with it because it went against Christian beliefs. And number two, they were absolutely um, opposed to paying out more federal taxes and everything like that and giving federal Again, benefits. I think what you so, see um, in that case, and I think in you could bring it to modern day, you could take it to interracial marriage, whatever you you know, whatever the the new social mores discussion is. The reason for an uproar is is usually not just I disagree with them for deeply spiritual, religious, core value beliefs. I disagree with it, and what they are doing is wrong, sinful, whatever words you want to ascribe to it. It's not just that. It is that our human nature says if someone gets something, if someone else receives privilege, you know, to, to take it to this, if the Church of Latter-day Saints is allowed to exercise and practice polygamy, and receive a tax benefit from that, that's not fair because my religion doesn't uh, enjoy that because I personally don't enjoy that. That we feel privilege, and, and maybe by definition, privilege cannot be shared. And more than that, we don't want to. We don't want to share it. We, we enjoy our status in place of power and control. And the, the predominant narrative, as Justice Brewer rightly figured out at the end of the 19th century, Christianity has been the predominant narrative, specifically Protestantism has been the predominant narrative for the U.S. story. And because of that, any time the, the prevailing narrative and values have been challenged or forced to adapt and respond, that's when you see historical conflict. That's when you see a, a great need for not only tolerance, but for compromise. And for people to really talk about what's at stake, because one of the things for, for Christianity, and, and the Apostle Paul writes on it very, very prolifically, is he's concerned about the disciples. He's concerned about the church of Jesus Christ, what they do, how they behave, how they act. It does not matter how everyone else in the world acts. You, as a disciple of Christ, are called to live in a certain way, to be disciplined in a certain way, and to witness, not only in a certain way, but to a specific truth, namely Jesus Christ. And if other people latch onto it, great. They are now part of this group, this body of Christ, and they are subject to the same responsibilities and to the same levels of accountability. If not, you are still called to just witness, to share with what you see as the truth. But you cannot, and, and Christianity, looking at just the ministry of Christ, was never an obligation, was never a forceful, violent tactic. It was always an invitation. But what we see, because human nature gets involved with beliefs, and specifically with Christianity, is because of that position of privilege, because of a long-standing tradition of a position of privilege, that has become a, well, you aren't doing what we know is right, what we know is truth, and so I'm going to punish you in some way, or I'm going to bring afflictions upon you in some way, and, and that you have to live by my definition of truth, whether you agree with it or not. One, that's, that's not very American, because it does infringe on a, a whole plethora of freedoms. Two, it isn't faithful ministry in the name of Christ, because it is trying to force 
belief on someone, which never works, rather than invite them to respond for themselves, which is much more successful and, and actually is kind of a prerequisite. You, you cannot be forced into belief or into practice. You will resent it. But I think that's, that's kind of one of the underlying dilemmas that we've seen, especially as our U.S. narrative has, has laid it forth. Right. So I think that the, obviously this is a topic that we could talk on for, you know, many more hours. We do need to kind of wrap this up. I've already started to think in terms of I, I really want to, you know, talk about and, and kind of go along with that polygamy marriage argument and, and kind of talk more about, well, look at what the religious, the religious right for lack of a better term, I guess, is doing in terms of trying to mandate and to define what, like you talked about, Bradley, biblical marriage versus traditional or anything like that, and trying to legislate whether or not two people, man and man, woman, woman, transsexuals, you know, whatever, can get married to people that they want to get married to. I think that's a very interesting topic. It's something that I may decide to talk a little bit about in a mini podcast over the next couple of days. You know, stay tuned for that. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, for this episode, I think we've kind of hit what we needed to hit, what we wanted to hit with a couple of exceptions. Maybe we want to go a little bit further. But I do want to kind of pose a couple of questions to, um, to our audience. You know, number one, what do you think in terms of specifically the... the the federal government reaching this agreement with the Mormon church way back in the 19th century for Utah to become a state. Do you agree with Bradley's position that they were well within their rights to do so because essentially the the Mormon church agreed to it? They they didn't they felt that it was worth it to them to give up that particular belief in order to enjoy join the states? Or do you agree with me that the federal government overstepped its bounds and has continued to do so with regards to polygamy, with regards to other things? Again, you may have the position that we don't have, which is the federal government has the right to say no to all religions because of this slippery slope argument. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that they, you go the complete opposite way and say that anything, If as long as you say religion, you get to then have human sacrifices. Of course, that's not the reality that we live in, nor would it, we want to live in that reality. But we want to hear your uh, reaction to this, this question, specifically with regards to polygamy. Definitely want to hear what you think about our podcast, what, you, what you'd like to hear in the future. Please hit us up on Twitter, TPR Around on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Uh, TPR around, uh, teach, preach, and reach around. You know, yes, there's there's a lot of good content there. You know, we we're trying to post as much as possible, and we actually have a new new place for to to look for, and it's actually a somewhat of a plea. We we love doing this podcast. We really do. Unfortunately, our equipment and our means are limited. We want to continue to get better. We want to continue to produce better quality. On um, podcasts, you, you, if you listen to podcasts, you're going to see a couple of different options. Number one, you're going to see people start to do commercials and sponsors and everything like that. That's one way for podcasts to stay free. Another way is people start charging per podcast. We don't want to do either of those. We want this to be for you. We don't want to feel indebted to a sponsor. We want to feel indebted to 
our audience. So in that vein, we have created a Patreon account and, and a page. Patreon is www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can find us there, Teach, Preach, and Reach Around, or TPR Around. Uh, you can go on there. And what you can do is you can pledge to make a certain contribution per month, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can afford. Or if you want to contribute, that's what we are asking for you to do. The idea behind this isn't for us to get rich. We, we're we not wanting that. Okay, we want that, but that's not what we're <laughs> I was just... getting ready to say. <laughs> we want that, but that's not, that's not our goal. Our goal is simply if we could get a little bit of money that would help out per month, it would allow us to get better equipment so we could produce better quality um, products for you. It would also allow us to get a website uh, up and running so that we can do that. Our, our needs aren't really a lot. I think what we're looking to do is getting around $500 a month from pledges. That would allow us to accomplish all of our goals no, plus some. Steven, Steven, $500 in a year. I understand what you're saying, but I, I, I told you the other day, yes, we only need $500 for the website and everything like that, but I'm, I'm, I want to go big. Set, Set the, the bar, bar high. <laughs> I'm not going. I have faith in our audience, and that's where we're going to go. You know, obviously, we're going to make do with whatever we get. We're going to make do, and we're going to give you the best product we can. But I'm looking at the big picture, and I'm looking at a brand that I think people are going to want to get get involved with. I envision TPR, Teach, Preach, and Reach Around T-shirts walking around Vegas, Charlotte, all over the country. Eventually, I'm a realist in the sense that I know we're not there. We may never get there, but I'm also an optimist in the thing that I want to be there. I don't want to set ourselves up for not setting the bar high enough. So I have put the I have put the goal out there to get $500 worth of pledges for a month. That if if we were able to get anywhere close to that, we would be able to accomplish so much that we want to accomplish. Get better equipment, record better products. And maybe even start to do a lot more with regards to maybe video and everything. So, with that being said, I think this is a great place to leave it off. Please continue to follow us. Please continue to you know involve yourself with our conversation. Look forward to many more mini podcasts as well as other main podcasts. Davey, anything else? Okay, nope, Bradley, good. good. All right. Yep, so, good. on behalf of all of us, thank you very much. We'll look forward to talking to you again. And once and for all, go Tigers. 